My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Abraham. I had to get Jeff Abraham on this show because, well, he wrote a book, and this book is so spot on for an unstructured Halloween episode, I had to have him on. The book is called The Show Won't Go On, and it covers essentially people who died while performing in front of an audience. How are you doing today, Jeff? Doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's it's really fun, and I'm so glad you came here on a short notice. Now, this book was inspired, I think you said, because you attended a tribute an Elvis tribute show and the performer the performer didn't die on stage what happened was part of the show there was an announce announcer who was part of the show you don't know his name but you know the voice ladies and gentlemen Elvis has left the building thank you and good night a man <laughs> named Al Devoren who had been with the colonel going back to 1955 and at the end of the show he was mulling around in the lobby and someone said, Al, when are you going to write a book? He said, yeah, yeah, I know. I'll get to it. And I said goodnight to him at 1030 Saturday night, Sunday morning. He was killed in a car accident. And it literally took my uh, breath away. And you think about people's last performances. And that's what I was kind of thinking. I had an idea for the... It wasn't about death at all. It was more about the curiosity about people's last shows. You know, hmm. Buck Owens perform- performed had a meal, went to sleep, and never woke up. So it was that kind of stat. You know, John Enwistle, the Who, was in a hotel room with hookers and blow, <laughs> and, and allegedly. Redundant. Uh, and they, <laughs> right. And the Who was all set to do a reunion tour, and he died, you know, before going on. So it was, it was, that kind, it was more of an interesting in the stat. And my writing partner, the wonderful Bert Kearns, who I had uh, dealt with him on a book about tabloid journalism, about 15 years earlier or more, said, would you shut up and stop talking about this book? Let's do it. And as we started to talk about it, we we realized there were really that many people who literally died on stage. So the idea of people who died before a show and after a show fell to the wayside to now literally people who met their demise, as you said, in front of an audience. It's so funny because it sounds like it was far too wide of a subject because there's that many deaths. It is a never-ending subject. I can't I can't tell you the number of people who've died since we actually handed in the manuscript. It's, it, is, it is completely ongoing. It's crazy. <laughs> I was looking at your website, and you actually have recent deaths, and it looks like you have, what do you have, 8, 16, 21 deaths. Just yeah, this year. I mean, it, I mean, <laughs> uh, we were doing a, in a weekend a couple of tribute artists and things of that. You know, international performers who've made headlines around the world. But it it is a, a crazy su- subject, and believe it or not, something that really hasn't been tackled before. So that was the wonderful part was to find something that hadn't been written about before. Yeah, did you get um any kind of pushback that it it seemed a little ghoulish to some people or or some people? Um, a little, uh, I the one of the agents we pitched it to uh, said, this is the worst mystery novel I've ever read because a person dies <laughs> in the beginning of every chapter. And, and, they, and they felt it was just kind of redundant, and it was also because it's not loaded with household names. So we, there was some resistance, not of the ghoulish aspect, just because of the subject matter was just odd in the way it was presented. And even in the beginning of the book, as we were writing, I, I was actually... I hate to say it, but I will say it, kind of bored because you read it and he goes, and he had a heart attack, and mm. he had a heart attack, 
and it gets redundant. But by really great getting the most, as the t- subtitle says, the most shocking, bizarre, and historic deaths, you, we wanted people who were to be engaged in these persons' lives. So when they met their demise, you, would, you were touched by them. It wasn't just a series of deaths. We really, it's a book about a celebration of lives. Uh, who unfortunately these performers uh, died on stage. Yeah, I, I like what you did there. I actually have another show called Portmanteau, and it literally is about words that are portmanteaus. But I have mm. a brief history about the word, and I kind of feel like that's what you've done with the book is, yes, they died, but why do we care? So you spent a lot of time on why do we care, and then, oh, by the way, they died. Right. As we said, you know, if these were short bios, you were, and the, it was climaxing to somebody winning an award or some, you know, some major achievement, it would it would have the same kind of outcome, and that's what we wanted to do is to have that kind of dramatic outcome, and, you're, and really care about the 87 year old woman who was attempting to break the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest tenure in the orchestra, but unfortunately died of a uh, of a heart attack in mid uh, during the encore of the show, and oddly enough, while playing the song. There's no business like show business. Yeah, that was kind of a beautiful one, though. You know, some of them felt more tragic, and some of them felt kind of beautiful. You know, hers, that was uh, Janice Little. Jane Little, correct. Jane Little. Yeah, she is the first entry, mm-hmm. and the last entry is the wonderful Carl Walenda, um, who, 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 the Flying Walenda family, we know Nick Walenda, uh, who's been breaking world records. He walked across Times Square a few months ago. And they're they they're the uh, part of the show business tradition. The show must go on, as family members have tragically died doing the the human uh, pyramid on top of you know high wires. They keep they kept on performing. So those those two stories are kind of like the bookend mm. of our uh, not kind of are the bookends of the book. Well, that's cool. And what I enjoy too is it seems like you got a lot of interviews. Pin Gillette comes to mind. Like you spent some time with Penn somehow, and and really got some great insight with the bullet catching. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, I mean, we really the, there has been a book written about that before called I think Twelve Who Dared or Twelve Who Died about the history of the bullet catch, um, a magician's uh, book. Um, but we expanded upon that. We have almost two two dozen people who died during the bullet catch, and Penn and, and Teller are the greatest exponents of doing the bullet catch. And um, I think it's fair to say it's okay. I can tell you how the trick is done. Sure. It's a trick. <laughs> it's a trick. That's the, unfortunately, back then, people were using live ammo and doing things. They, they were not the safest thing. But at the end of the day, people are not really catching bullets. It's a trick. And Penn was wonderful about explaining the philosophy behind the trick and said, we, what we do in our show is nothing more dangerous than what Houdini would do. And his philosophy was, nothing is more dangerous than, I don't do anything more dangerous than sitting in this chair. That's not to say there aren't elements of danger in certain sure. tricks, but the, their precautions have been so well done, the case of a mishap are, are nearly impossible. Hey, when Teller's in the tank of water, yes, yeah, something could happen. You know what I mean? Just like a stuntman. They do everything they can to to avoid a risk, but there are risks involved. Um, so yeah, we, um, 
we really prided ourselves by doing a great deal of research and, mm-hmm. and when possible, interview eyewitnesses who were there and, you know, uh, sp- you know ch- spouses and children of the, uh, de- the deceased. We've always said, you know, we could have written this book in a half hour if we just wanted to go to uh, Wikipedia and type in, typed in people who died on stage. But the amount of research in this book is, is pretty um, um, amazing and um and it really is shown within the pages. Oh, definitely. And that's why I wanted to bring it up, because how long did it actually take you to write this book? About three years. Okay. That sounds uh, right. Um, and, you know, one newspaper article would lead you down a rabbit hole to another article and finding a person. And sometimes a newspaper, a newspaper article is written on a deadline, so there's not all the facts in there. So you have to keep on digging. And there's a lot of urban legends have been reported over and over. And, and one of the most proudest stories in the book is the story of J.I. Rodale, the health longevity expert who died during a taping of the Dick Cavett show. Mm. Now that episode has never aired to this day, but believe it or not, people come up to Dick Cavett and said, the look on your face when that person died. And Dick would say, were you in the audience? Oh, you weren't? When, how did you see it? It never aired. (laughs) Well, a good, a good friend of mine works for Dick Cavett Productions. And he said to me, if you sell this book, we will allow you to be the first people to watch this episode. So you can literally count on one hand the number of people. We are the first journalists, civilians who've seen this. And there were a lot of urban legends. You know, when you die, the body makes it almost like a snoring sound. So Mm. it was always thought that he was being interviewed by Dick Dick, he was Dick Cavett was interviewing Rodale. And then the next guest was on and you heard a snoring sound and... Dick apparently had said, am I boring you? Mm. Because he heard, but no, that never happened. And it was always said that his last line was, oh, I could live to a hundred. And then he died again, an urban legend. So we were able to correct a lot of urban legends by doing a a great deal of research for this book. Well, let's go on the flip side. What were some examples of cases where you thought it was one thing, but it turned out to be much deeper or more outstanding or interesting? You know, there's a story in the book that everyone has always asked us about Lee Morgan, the great jazz trumpeter. Um, and said, why isn't he included in the book? Well, it turns out Lee Morgan's band was on stage. He, um, he was um, approaching the stage when he was shot by his common-law wife about an affair he was having with a woman, and he was killed inches from walking on the stage. So he did not die on stage. He missed it by that much. So it was that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, there were a lot of people said, oh, why didn't you have Irene Ryan, Granny from Beverly Hillbillies? You find out, well, she didn't die on stage. She collapsed on stage, but it was months later before she died on stage. So it was it's going back and correcting urban legends. Yeah, I mean, you hear about, oh, he died in his hotel room. He died on stage. He died the next day. Yeah, so there was a, a lot of that. That kind of research went in to clarify those kind of errors. You really had to take a razor's edge on the Lee Morgan case, though. I mean, <laughs> that, that that one had right. to kill you because you're like, okay, well, strictly by the rules. It, it's almost like you have a referee involved in your choices. Well, we do have two. We do have two musicians in a chapter called the Long Goodbye because there are connections to that. other musicians, right? And that's um, Jackie Wilson and Curtis Mayfield, and right, and they both died about eight or nine years later. But there, there's connections to other musicians, so that's kind of they they fit in there. But yeah, we you really kind of had to die, you know, collapse on stage, and you could have died at the hospital hours later. But yeah, there there was that kind of criteria. 
we were very strict. And even by the occupation, um, you know, circus performers are performers. So there are no stuntmen in the book. There aren't athletes. We wanted people mm-hmm. who had accidental deaths, people who were not predicated on doing de- a, de- a deadly death, like a magician who was buried alive. It's a trick. But unfortunately, it turned out to be the, uh, the world's most da- dangerous trick when he was buried alive under cement. Yeah, he took it to a new level. Of course, the most dangerous job of all, you proved, was being a conductor. <laughs> that was the most surprising. I had no idea. And I have to, I think Bert uh, discovered that when he had so many orchestra conductors. And it turns out these men who are 50 plus, 50 to 70 to 80 years old, who live a life on airlines. And, you know, we all know about the bad circulation. You hear about that. Terrible mm. food. You know, the stress involved with, you know, dealing with orchestras, which are not always your own me- uh, members of your team. Um, and then the uh, physical exertion that goes into um, the symphony, you know, the aer- aerobic exercise of the arm has created more orchestra conductors dying than any other profession. We've had more people die conducting an orchestra than being shot out of a cannon. Wow. <laughs> just, Think about that. I, it's staggering. And, and speaking of shot out of a cannon, most people, when they're shot out of a cannon, don't die from that because you're, you're not shot. There's not gunpowder in that. Right. You're being usually by air, air per, uh, cushion, you know, um, pressure pushing you out and they usually die by landing on the net and breaking their neck that makes sense that makes sense right the one that creeped me out and i thought i took a note of the name but um yeah washington irving bishop that was chilling can you talk about that one he was kind of the creskin of his day you know the uh kind of a, a psychic mentalist but unfortunately he had a terrible disease where his body would form almost like a rigor mortis and he'd become um, rigid and he had a note in his body. So if anything happened to him, people would realize, oh, he didn't die. His body had it had gone into this state. And at one time he collapsed during a show. And when his family went to uh, collect the body, they said, oh, we had just performed an autopsy on him. And because they, they wanted to examine this man's unique brain because he'd done these amazing stunts. And when doing the autopsies, they never thought to look inside his, his coat to see if there was that note. See, that's what creeped me out was that doctor that you um, mentioned in there was in a dead fire hurry and even said that um, what I interpret as almost narcissistic rem- remark. Why is nobody right. thanking me for the speed of what I conducted? Absolutely. Um, and, and in fact, his widow, I think it was a very long standing lawsuit and written things about uh, about that. Yeah, a lot of documentation about her um, going against the doctors in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing was to create something unique in the book as again, so they weren't all heart attacks. So you had performers who were assassinated on stage, electrocuted, you know, you know, you know, so, so it gave everyone a very unique story. Yeah. The other one, and I, I, I knew about this already, um, Irma blue and the Cobra bite, you know, there's a perfect example of people who, who think everything is fine, you know, and, and, and trusting other people who feel that, oh, working with a snake, my handler will take care of it to make sure the mouth is taped shut or the, there's no venom in, there's no poison in, in, in the mouth. And she was bit, 
So she didn't think anything of it. And within 45 minutes, she had died from the snake bite. And you can watch the whole performance online, which I just can't even watch. It's just, uh, it's disturbing. The other thing, you know, some of these deaths from, you know, the seventies and on were captured on, you know, live, live. And they live on YouTube. You know, one of the, probably one of the most viewed deaths of all time was a magician named Tommy Cooper. He was a comedy mm-hmm. magician from England. His name is name checked in the song, give peace a chance by John Lennon. And he was doing a piece of comedy business and he fell and people thought, Oh, it's a piece of business. Oh, he's got a new piece of stick in the act. He's, he's clowning around. And then it was almost like 45 seconds until people realized it was not part of the act and that clip lives on youtube and it's it's racked up millions of views in fact every now and then i think some members of the tommy cooper society try to uh get it removed from youtube at a bad taste yeah um you actually tied multiple deaths around that his particular death. yeah well you know there's always that wonderful expression he died doing what he loved and you've heard that so many times you Mm -hmm. heard that with tommy cooper so many english comedians we found in our book, they either said, I hope I don't go out like Tommy Cooper, or if I do, I hope I go out like Tommy Cooper. You know what I mean? They thought it was like almost a badge. In fact, the amazing Jonathan says, says in his current documentary, he had health problems. And he said, well, I could stay, I could stay here in bed and die, or I could go out on stage and die like Tommy Cooper. Hmm. He, he, he took it. And you take that as a badge. I mean, I just read that about Elton John, you know, going out on this farewell tour. You know, maybe I'll go out and die on stage. People think that I'm gay, you know, giving it all to their audience, you know? Pendulette even you have, said that to you, right? Yeah. He exactly said, I thought, we, yeah, maybe we'll go. I would like to go out like that, you know? Because you're giving, you're giving it to your end. You're giving it to your art. And, and then you have... The other magicians who go, oh, my God, you know, the comedians in England, you know, who says, I just hope I don't go out like Tommy Cooper. <laughs> wow. And, they go, and going back to the, the Walendas, Carl Walenda, the patriarch, said, I'd rather die on the wire than in bed. And his grandson, Nick, said, no, I'd rather die in bed with my grandchildren around me rather than on the wire. I'm with Nick. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I prefer in, and, in and sleep. That's, <laughs> and, that's the, and that's the thing when, when you interview these children or these performers, you know, that, you know, do you get comfort? You know, like Dick Sean's son, hmm. who says, well, yeah, I guess dying on a stage is nice. But my dad wasn't done. He had another 20 years in front of him. Right. I'd rather have him still around. So it, it's, it, you know, it's really weird. The best example of that is Albert Brooks's father mm. was a comedian. His Albert Brooks's real name is Albert Einstein. I don't know if you know yes. if you knew that. <laughs> um, his father Very unfortunate. was Harry, yes, and his father was a comedian named Harry Einstein, who worked in a with a Greek dialect uh, in radio with a character called Parkiakarkis. And Albert's brother is Bob Einstein, otherwise known as Super Dave, who just passed recently. Fa- yeah, we lost him earlier this year. And his father was not in best of health, wasn't that old, but in the last years of his life, he was not in great health. But he had started to bounce back, and he was, became a very popular performer at Friars events and dinners of that sort. And there was a testimonial dinner to Lucio Ball and Desiree Inez. And to use a show business cliche, 
he killed that night. <laughs> and you can hear and you can hear the audio on our website. There's no business like show. But I'm sorry. You can you can hear it on our website. The show won't go on. And the perfect there's no business like show business it's idiom. He died right after his performance. Art Linkletter said, why isn't this man working more often? And almost on cue, his head went down onto the lap of Milton Berle next to him, and he died. Now, Albert has said, isn't that wonderful? My dad didn't die on the way to the show. My dad didn't die in mid-joke. He got his last laugh, took a bow, and died. How great is that? You covered a lot more on that, though, that was was like, yeah, what? With the electric wires being attached, his right. chest being cut oh, open, you, heart massage. We, we want you to read the book. <laughs> no, but but the other side of it is what his brother has, has said many times. He said, what did your mom do for a living? Oh, a housewife. <laughs> mm. Well, what if I came home, came to your, your home, and your mom was cooking eggs and I hit her over the head with a frying pan and killed her. Would you say your mom died doing what she loved? <laughs> so, that was, so he, he, he thought that was in bad taste. If you said, well, your dad died doing what he loved. Yeah, it's hard to get that right. And I have one quick question for you. Yeah. What is a yeah. testimonial versus a roast? Um, the reason I say testimonial, because everyone has called it a roast, the friars were very, were known for doing these stag roasts and, and with dirty language, certainly not what you hear today. Mm-hmm. Um, but a testimonial dinner was a lifetime achievement award, and there would be, would be mixed company. There would be women in the audience. The old roasts were stag, and they only had men in the audience and men on stage, and they were and they were and they were dirty. They were blue, as they would say. I mean. Um, you may hear the word, but it would be once. It, would, it wouldn't be filthy, but it, again, we were in a generation in the 50s and early 60s. You don't talk that way in front of women. You know what I mean? Right. So they were called stag roasts. But this was a testimonial lifetime dinner, and there were men and women in the audience, and they were saluting a woman, uh, Lucille Ball. So it was not a, uh, a dirty uh, event. Okay. Okay. I, I was wondering about that. I didn't know if it was roasts I've found to be traditionally mocking or teasing a subject. Yeah, you're still you're still mocking, yeah. In okay. fact, um, um, Harry Einstein is certainly mocking the whole idea of the friars, and yeah, you're, you're making fun of them, but you're you're being it's a not- little naughty because you're in mixed company. Uh, in a stag roast, you, you'll say, "Oh, you dirty cocksucker!" You're not mm. really going to say it with men and women in the, in the audience. Gotcha. It's not blue. Um, right now, I, I also wanted to reach back because you know the three years uh, it took you guys to write it. I really want to stress the amount of work you did interviewing people because I could see it woven throughout and. And I'm wondering, is your day job what helped you get some of the access to interview some of yeah, these folks? I think some of it. I mean, I, I knew Penn Jillette. I had. I'm an entertainment publicist by trade. Um, I knew Penn Jillette. I had promoted one of Penn and Teller's books. It's terrible. Like, it was so many years ago. It was either how to play in uh, play in traffic or how to play with food or something like that. So I, I knew Penn Jillette. I knew his people. So that was one. Um, um, Dick Sean, we were, we were, we were able to, Dick Sean's son, Adam Sean, he was interviewed on the D- Johnny Carson podcast. And I knew the gentleman who ran the podcast and he put me in touch with them. But some of them was detective work, you know, contacting someone at a symphony orchestra and say, can we do that? And, you know, finding people through Facebook and finding musicians and things of that nature. Yeah. So that helped a little bit. Um, and also I think we were very respectful of the people. Um, I think Dick Walenda, you know, I think just by, 
hook or crook by going through his website and finding out who his agent is, you know, his representative was. You know, I, I don't remember because um, Bert did some interviews. I'll give an example. Um, I wanted to use the photos of Carl Willenda falling to his death, mm. you know, um, and so we had to clear the photographer. So I, you know, doing a lot of research and finding, I found the photographer and didn't put two and two together. I said, wait, not only did he take the photos, he was an eyewitness to the event. You know <laughs> right. what I, mean? I just, I was contacting him because I, I wanted permission for the photos. You know, I didn't think, oh, I need to also interview you. Um, but yeah, that was a perfect example. You know, just, you know, his, you know, looking at enough photos, I saw a photo credit. And then, you know, Google, and then you go you go down, you know, dozens of uh, rabbit holes, and you f try to find where the guy is, and then you find him on some message board or something, you know, and you email him, and hopefully he's around, you know? That's a fascinating thing, too, because I kind of wonder about that, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I kind of, it'll come off that way a little, I don't mean it to be, no, but, but the idea of witnessing a death and continuing, continuing to fire your camera is a, yeah. it, there's a weird disconnect well you know there is i think one thing was he was very lucky he, he had a motor drive so he was able to take a lot of photos very quickly but you know you're also a journalist you know and right. i don't I, I can't i don't know his complete background i apologize but sure. you know journalists you know some have been trained in combat you know they're, they're, they're he wasn't doing it i'm going to take a sensational photo right. that's going to make me a lot of it wasn't that you know, there wasn't an ulterior motive but he knows he's capturing something in the okay. moment and your reflex is your you're you're there with a camera it's attached to your your arm your hand so you are going to capture sense. that moment you're not going to turn away you know it's like I mean? instinct then so he's watching it through the absolutely. camera because that's his eyes an extension of himself absolutely right okay and it's not to say that a photographer who captures a gruesome moment says i'm not going to publish this photo you can have these five photos but you're not going to have the sixth one you know what i mean right going back to the dick cavett example you know he he decided this was in poor taste i'm not going to air this on television you know they didn't even edit out the sequence he was you know he was there for 30 minutes or so so yeah i mean it, it is a judgment call you know but now, unfortunately, so many of these deaths are, you know, everybody's in, on, has a camera, you know, a video phone, you know, recording a uh, aerialist who, you know, drops from the stage during a circus du Soleil show. They capture all this now. How has the um, response been from, uh, uh, like, Sean family and, and others? Have you gotten any feedback on um, the book? You know, Adam, you know, was, you know, was flattered that you're, where he's, his father is being remembered, you know, that he's, and we want, by doing these entries, the way they're written, we wanted people to know that Dick Sean was more than just a footnote. Oh yeah, the guy who died on stage. Mm -hmm. No, he was a brilliant stand-up comedian. And, you know, it was the, two of the greatest comedies of all time, the producers in Mad Man World. And no, I mean, because he was there the night his father died. He was a stage manager. Mm -hmm. And the amazing Joe's son was there the night his father was buried alive. So no, when they're telling these stories 30 years later, they're crying at times, you know? So, that, But at the same time, um, they were fl they were flattered that somebody cared enough to tell their story that hopefully people will remember them. And we didn't do a bait and switch, you know? I think some agents and people said wanted the book to be snarky. Now, like oh, I said, you know, now the person who dies after singing Talk About Me at 
talk about me while I'm gone, you know, or the actor who dies during a play called The Anatomy of Murder. There are some ironic things in that book. You sure. know what I mean? Or, but or what was it that, during the Harry Einstein death, the song he chose to sing? Right. There, uh, sing. To, to calm the crowd, and he sang, there's no tomorrow. Those are <laughs> ironic moments. And Bert and, I, Bert and I always said, what's the button? Is there something in this little entry that makes it so it's just not, and he had a heart attack. Like Dick Sean, for example, one newspaper said he was, I think it was the LA Times, he, he made him out um, four years younger. I said he got the last laugh in, de in death. He, be, he became four years younger when he died. <laughs> so so there were ironic moments, but we did not want to be snarky. We, we're not making fun of the guy who was shot on stage while trying to c catch a bullet. You right. know what I mean? Or the, or the musician who was assassinated with some from the uh, some crazed person from the audience. Dimebag. Yeah. So by no means were we trying to do that. Were there any that you just decided, you know what, uh, I don't want to put it in the book? Yes, it qualifies, but I'm not comfortable with it. Right? I don't like it. We, we don't want to put it in. No, uh, there were no. I mean, it was. I think it was goes back to our criteria of meeting the criteria of it. Was there an audience? But no, there were, because we're, they were all done um, tasteful. There was. Um, it was nothing done in the way like, you know, that might be too gross. You know what I mean? Um, right. I not, didn't know that, there was an incident that you found that you said, you know what? I no, just don't even want to have. Um, nothing immediately comes to mind. I The big joke is if anyone finds a correspondence between Bert and I that took place during the last three years, I think we'll get in a lot of trouble uh, <laughs> when, when a performer like Meatloaf collapsed on stage. And one of us sends an email to the other and goes, I wonder if we'll make chapter seven. You know, <laughs> well, you know, you'd have Steven to have gallows Tyler, humor to a point. Right. You know, Steven Tyler collapsed on stage not that long ago and Phil Collins fell over recently. So, you know, you get to be a little snarky, you know. Um, but no, um, nothing that I can remember being, you know, the newscaster committed suicide on stage during a, a newscast. Um, oh, there was no. a murder that took place. That, um, right. That too. But again, because it is it is a history book. It is a sense. Uh, it is we're giving a history uh, example from all different uh, walks of uh, occupations and things of that nature. You know, this is a book we, we we're, it should not be placed in the humor section of a bookstore. You know what I mean? It should be in pop culture or I entertainment. Yeah, I, I agree, or or history, but definitely pop culture. What out of all of these? What was the most impactful death to you personally? I think reliving the car will let I, I think the two that we opened and closed the book with Jane Little I think you know again this 87 year old woman who lived, lived up to her name you know she played the double stand up bass which was bigger than her and you know was trying to get the you know be, to have the Guinness Book of World Record and then dies while playing there's no business like show business you know what you know man does that not touch you and then Carl Walenda you know the great patriarch, old, maybe some people said he should not have been on the wire, but it was only two years ago, earlier, that he was still breaking Guinness Book of World Records. So, and just, I mean, the fact that the, the, de the death was captured so well, the photos that we have in the book, you, you know, if you go to Google, you'll see one photo, you'll see another photo, but we were able to have three photos, and his death is just made such an amazing impression around the world. I mean, what a way for a performer to go out that way. You know what I mean? If, you know, if Carl had a heart attack, you know, while watching TV, it, it would have gotten a paragraph, you know, right. In, 
on the news. But I mean, for for what a way for him to go out. And I mean, again, and the, and the great part of the story is, so the uh, photographer goes to uh, hand the photos in to the newspaper. They said, "What are you doing here? Why aren't you at the circus? What are you talking about?" He goes, "The Willenders are going to go on. Well, the Insane. rest of his family were." We're going to go continue to perform that that evening. I, that that's that's just amazing. It's amazing, but, but that uh, is but that is the circus philosophy, you know. And it is sort of a mindset. I mean, I kind of understand. It. It's like, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to just stand right. there? Are they going to uh, or are they going to perform? Because he probably would tell them, "Get off your ass and go perform." And it was only I, I don't remember how long, but Nick and his and Carl's widow duplicated that walk and they when they got to the midwire i think they kissed and crossed over each other wow. you know they, they come from yeah i mean circus performers again are performers who who are literally like no else wow now you um changing back to your day job you must be familiar with the mindset because i mean you've represented some huge names i mean dice clay steve harvey george lopez bill maher and, and then I was George Carlin, and then George the Carlin publicist for, for the last eleven years of his life. And I actually had a question about George Carlin. I had a previous guest yeah. on uh, James Fallon, and he had mentioned that he was a family friend of George Carlin, and that George Carlin used to call him because he's um he's a neuroscientist, right? And George Carlin thought he was going crazy or had Alzheimer's. Wow! Did you know I any had of that? Never heard. I had never heard that. Two things. One, even though I worked with George for eleven years, we were not. Personally close. Right. I mean, I, I never, I never invited me over to his house. Let's have dinner. However, in eleven years, anytime he played Southern California, where I live, I would, I would go to his his shows. I and go backstage and see George. And anytime he did it, you know, the talk shows, I was there with him. So we were, we were, we were professionally very close. Right. So the, what kind of phone calls he did, you know, made. You know, he, very often he would call performers and encouragement or meet some kid from a high school news. Do an interview. He didn't say call my publicist. He said, "Here, what's your number? Let me, I'll call. Let me, let me <laughs> give you a call. Let me check in with you." So, but going back to that, you know, George did a show in March before he died in June of that year. Certainly, I'm, I've never heard anyone say that George, you know, his before he was having problem performing. He was not ready to retire. You know what I mean? Right. So. So I'm I'm not aware, nor did I ever witness anything of that nature. Well, Doctor Fallon said it kind of in a humorous way, like a, it was almost a eccentricity. You know, like there's nothing wrong with the mm. guy. He's a, you know he's a genius. Everybody would call George right. Carlin a genius. I think who's ever watched comedy, but without without question. But it was sort of amusing because I guess he would call and say, "Jim, I'm going crazy." <laughs> it it was a, a very I think, interesting. I think, I think George was you know crazy the way society was turning. He was very sure. disenchanted about that. But no, um, no, I, he was brilliant up until the end. Now you mentioned how he would uh, talk to like a high school um, paper writer or whatever else. Being a publicist, I'm very interested in what you do there. As a publicist, are you kind of a gatekeeper as well? It all it all depends. You have certain clients that you know that you know somebody will come will do those stories. You know, what do you have in your medicine cabinet? You know, what favorite books are you reading? Mm -hmm. And people go, you know what, I don't care about that. You know, right. don't bother me with those kind of requests. But when I have a like, like George Carlin, he toured for eleven years because he was the touring allowed him to prepare for an HBO special. So. 
his job was to make sure the concerts were sold out. So that was my job to make sure he, we, when he was coming to Boise, Idaho, I talked to the Boise, set up an interview with the Boise rock station and the Boise newspaper. And when he had an HBO special to make sure, you know, he did time magazine or booked him on the tonight show. So, but I wouldn't waste his time with, with that, that kind of stuff. It depends on the, the client. No, you really can't be a gatekeeper. It will come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. If someone says, hey, I want to interview George Carlin. No, he's not available. You try mm-hmm. to tell them, you know, he doesn't do these kind of things, but let me ask. Mm-hmm. But after spending 11 years with a client, 99% of the time, you can kind of get a sense of what he will do and won't do. That makes sense. And now to be completely self-serving as a podcaster, what do you look for? in terms of a pitch or a publication or a podcast who wants to speak to any of your clients? You know, unfortunately, we live in an area of social um, media. So I take a look, you know, what your Twitter following is. It doesn't have to be a Kardashian numbers. Mm -hmm. But if you have, you know, if I look at, not you, if I look at a Twitter following and it's 300 people and and a Facebook and and each post has one like, Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the point? You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and it's not like it's a two-minute interview. These, are, you know what I mean? And I and I have clients who are just, you know, they're they're on the road doing this and that. Plus, there are other things. So now I have to burden them right. with a, with an interview, and I don't know the guy. And I'm vouching for them by saying, "Hey, I want you to talk to the the XYZ podcast." Do you know about them? <laughs> no, but no, but why should I do it? Well, they seem good. I never talked to this guy before. I've only got a correspondent. So your 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 reputation is on the line. And you also look at who the other past guests were, how frequently they're, they're doing the shows. You know, you realize, oh, he posted June 1st, July 1st, November 2nd. Wait, what happened? Right, right. So then I look at that. What kind of guests? You know, are they all, it, I hate to use the expression D-list celebrities, but are they you know, they're wrestlers or this and that? You know, really, do I need to do that? Because some of my clients are just... They don't need to do it. You know, their ego doesn't. I'd rather them do one great podcast. Sure. And allows it. And they, that way they don't have to do 15. You know, if they do, if they talk to Joe Rogan, Mark Mara, or Adam Carolla, it really allows them to avoid doing all the unnecessary ones. And that makes sense. Uh, you have different tiers of clients too, correct? You have your right. A-listers. That, absolutely. And- right. So, and, it, and, it's a, and it, you know, the ones that aren't, as popular, you know, you will have them do some of the lesser ones, just one to um, get their expertise out there and get their name out there. Some people go, oh, you know what? I did hear them on that podcast, you know, and I've even seen that now that I'm on the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. You know, we were very fortunate. We got to do morning edition on NPR, weekend edition to be exact. And I've had more people come up to me said, wait, I heard you on something. Wait, I heard you on um, NPR. Or I heard you on Gilbert Gottfried. Mm-hmm. And I go, okay. So when a guy has a radio show and he's on from, you know, 8 to 9 New York time in Bangor, Maine, and I got to get up at 5 in the morning, I'm going, <laughs> do I need to do that? If it's at one thirty in the afternoon, he wants 15 minutes, that I don't mind doing. You know, there's a guy who has a, a you know, a video podcast. Now I got to go out. Now I got to. Now I got to get in the car and I got to go out to, it's 40 minutes to drive there, an hour to talk to him, 45 minutes back. That's three hours. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, am I really, am I really going to get out of it? I'm, I'm doing X, Y, and Z next week and I'm going to get the same reach. I don't have to leave my house. So what, that's, so those are what we look at. Um, the other thing is how well the letter is written. You know, in the old days when guys would have, you know, shows, they said, I have a radio show. 
I go, no, you don't. You have a show that airs on YouTube. <laughs> you could have a lot. Of, you could have a lot of followers, but don't call it a radio show. You know, don't bluff me. Call it what it is. You know, tell you know, tell me, hey, um, we're a new show. We're just started up, and we're we're into X. I think your client would be great. Makes sense. As somebody really yeah. studied your client too, I'm yeah, guessing that no, would make yeah. an impression. You know, we do a lot. We do we do a lot of actors, and we like this kind of person. Yeah, and, then, and, and very often I'll say this to a client. You know, and say. Hey, FYI, are you interested? And he can say, you know what? Not right now. I'm kind of slammed, but when we have something, maybe let's hold it. You know? I mean, when George Carlin, people would come up to us and say, hey, we're doing a documentary on X. I want to do George. I said, well, who else is interviewed? Well, we really don't have anybody yet, or we only have these people. And if I believe in the project, I think it's something interesting. And I can't twist George's arm. You really can't. And it will go, again, it can backfire on you. But you can say to the guy, I said, listen, come back to me in three months when you've interviewed a couple other people. Or when you have financing. Because how many documentaries come to you and they don't have financing? Who's your distributor? Because I don't want to you know, be interviewed for something that sits for three years. Out of curiosity... You had mentioned, you know, obviously on the lower tiers, you'll take chances on other podcasters. Do you follow up and listen to the performance that the podcaster did with one of your clients and then say, hey, they did a really good job. We'll kind of keep them in the uh, wings, almost like a minor league. Not as often as I should. I can't listen to everything, you know. Sure. But I do listen to some of those. Yeah. But, you know, I always said if my client does an interview and if it if it goes OK, I never hear about it. Right. If it's the if he emails me or calls me and says, oh, my God, that was the worst <laughs> thing, or I hear, oh, my God, hey, those guys were really good, then th- that's when I, I hear about it. But if it's like I do five interviews and, and they don't they don't say anything, I'm assuming everything went okay. You know, they don't expect everything to be brilliant. Oh, sure. You know, they're, they're talking the, the frickin' frack radio show in Boise. You know, they don't expect them to be as slick and great as the guys in New York. But they're okay. They're fine. They, nobody gets hurt. If they, as long as they didn't ask anything personal or bearing. But yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of guys who just are really obnoxious and uh, I'll try, I'll really try not to use them if I don't have to. Mm. Yeah, I'm not asking to name names. I'm just, I, I always, if I have the opportunity to speak to somebody who's in the industry or related, you know, these are questions because I'm, I serve a lot of podcasters too, and they want to know. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the thing is, half the time, you never talk to the host anyway. Even if you talk to anybody, you talk to the producer. Yep. And for example, you you know, you give the producer leading questions and confirmation, and somehow it never makes it to the the host. And when, when, the, when, the, when the guest does the interview, it's a terrible interview. He didn't ask him anything. He was supposed to ask mm. really yeah i can imagine that's irritating like i beforehand you know to be fair i mentioned is there something specific you want to pitch and i imagine that's something you specifically want with every client you have well it, it depends i mean if it's a, you know done to a, for a tour date to so make sure you say we're we're coming to town on june 5th right. but if it's an evergreen kind of thing usually you know some clients lay low in between projects they have there's nothing plugging at the moment so they may not there's no again they don't need to be out there Makes but sense. some people like to keep their name out there yeah well excellent and on that note people can find you at the show won't go on the show won't go on.com and the full title is the show won't go on the most shocking bizarre and historic deaths of performers on stage written by myself and my wonderful co-author Bert Kearns wonderful and the book is fantastic I'm enjoying every bit of it and I'll have it finished probably later today. Good. I wish you a happy Halloween to you and your listeners. And uh, I think uh, your listeners will all get a kick out of it. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Eric.
Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation. Like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake. Or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone. Or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing the diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Mm -hmm.